0: It's Wednesday, May 13th. We're studying 2 Peter. We're in chapter two. Take a look at the screen. You'll see we're jumping into the middle of a sentence actually here in verse 13. This is 2 Peter chapter two. We had talked about the analogy in verse number 12 of the false teachers being like animals in the sense that they're creatures of instinct. They're all about their passions. They're irrational. They're not thinking correctly. They're not thinking under the submission of a person made in the image of God. Uh, they're just uh, looking forward to the thing that we have been dealing with, at least the theme here, the promise of God's coming judgment. They're born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming, and that's the example. Now we see what they're doing, blaspheming about matters. We've talked a lot about that. Uh, Really, they're talking down about things they don't know anything about. They're ignorant about those things. will also be destroyed in their destruction, which was a piling up of, a play on words here—a very intensive way to put it—and now we finish the sentence here in verse thirteen: suffering wrong, which is another play on words, as the wages of their wrongdoing. And at least in English, it carries across that that con- concept of um, of wrong. Wrong—they'll get wrong for the wrongdoing. And uh, key word here is wages. Um, and then we get a description of what they're doing: they count it pleasure. To revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. Uh, early church, much like I hope our church, Uh, spend a lot of time around the table, a lot of food in their gatherings, not just taking their meals from house to house in their homes, as we learned in Acts chapter two, but also having a celebration of the Lord's supper, which would be part of a feast, part of a, much like a potluck, they would have these big meals in the church. So uh, these guys are running around in those meetings and they are uh, leading people astray. So let's talk a little bit about this in terms of the wages for wrongdoing. Uh, remember here, the context, they are going to be destroyed and the destruction is called the wages. Think about the word wages. The Wages of sin is death. Different Greek word there in Romans chapter 6. But the same idea, the idea of having a just consequence for your wrongdoing. Now, what's interesting is that we don't see that upon someone's death. We see the wages being tallied throughout history until history is over. And then at the great white throne judgment, they're brought to uh, an account. Matter of fact, let's look at that passage here in Revelation chapter 20. This is what we call the great white throne judgment because there's a great white throne that's the center of it. It says, when I saw, this is verse 11, Revelation 20, verse 11, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away. There was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, those who had died, great and small, didn't matter their standing. They were all standing. Sorry for that play on words there. They were all standing before the throne of God, right? And the books were opened. And then another book was open. So we have two books here, at least, plural, and another book was open, which is the Book of Life. So we really have three books, or sets of books here, at least. The idea of something that tells you that you deserve to be in this line. In other words, you haven't been exempted from the line. There is a book called the Book of Life or the Lamb's Book of Life, that if you're in it, from the Book of Revelation's perspective, then you are out of this judgment. You don't have a part in this judgment. But if you're not in that book, well then you're at the right place and the books that are going to be opened, I guess we can look throughout the rest of scripture to deduce that the idea of a book is one in which your deeds are recorded. That's of course an analogy, God doesn't need any books or paper or anything like that or a computer to keep track of people's deeds, but we've got their deeds and then we've got something that measures their deeds which is what the word canon means, by the way. It is the canon of scripture, the thing that measures all things. It is the measure of our behavior and our thoughts and our actions. And so we've got something here, a standard by which our deeds are measured and you're in the right line if your name's not written in the book of life. And the dead, those who died, which is more than just they had died. We really are dealing with those who were in the category of death here. They have not been given life in Christ and their names being written in the Lamb's Book of Life. They were judged, they were evaluated, by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Here's the key thing here. This is the idea of wages, right? they wages for what they had done and the effect of what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each of them, again, here's the theme, according to what they had done. That's the wages. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. So here is the resident place where people are paid back, retribution. They are judged, they've been evaluated, and now they are assigned an allotted place and some kind of experience in a thing called the lake of fire. And this is described as the second death, the lake of fire. So there is a death that we experience, the biological death that we experience. And then we hope, as we trust in Christ, and we have a hope, not a cross-your-fingers kind of hope, but a firm confidence that our names written in the Lamb's Book of Life will exempt us from this great white throne judgment. But those who don't have their names written there, well, they're going to have this assignment based on what they have earned. And no one's got more piled up against them than those who are the false teachers. Matter of fact, let's look at this passage, James chapter 3, verse 1. That's the problem with teaching. There's a residual effect on people listening to what you have taught or reading what you've written about God. And if they're misled, your error is compounded. And that's why even if you are a Christian and teaching the right things, you ought to be careful, because where there's an abundance abundance of words, transgression is unavoidable, to quote the Proverbs. And it says here that you should really think twice about becoming a teacher. As a matter of fact, not many of you should aspire to that, my brothers, for you know that we who teach, of course, James puts himself in that category, will be judged with a greater strictness. Now, of course, those who are Christians are going to be judged at the Bema Seat of Christ, and there will be rewards, and there will be people there that suffer loss to varying degrees. But those who are judged, who are false teachers, their names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Well, then they're going to be judged with a greater strictness than the non-Christian whose name wasn't written in the Lamb's Book of Life, but wasn't a teacher, didn't say things about God, didn't lead people down a path that wasn't accurate. So the Scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees were great examples of bad teachers. Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 40. Jesus here is the He and Uh, In his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who walk around in long robes, and they like the greetings in the marketplace. They like the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the feast. They devour widows' houses for a pretense. They make long prayers. And this is what Jesus constantly reminds us of when those teachers talk for God. They will receive, look at this phrase, a greater condemnation. And that's the problem. There's a compounding punishment for those at the end of time when you look at what they said and what they did and the effect of their teaching and what kind of judgment they're going to receive. Uh, This is a sad reality, but for those who aspire to some position of speaking for God, particularly those who are leading people on a path away from the truth of God's word, there is a great judgment that they are going to pile up. So they're suffering the wrong and they will suffer it. Again, there's that Prophetic perfect. We talk about that. We've talked about the idea of it so certain it's already there, like uh, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of men. That's Romans chapter one, the idea of it happening. Well, it hadn't happened yet. As Jesus said in John 3, the wrath of God abides upon those who do not believe in the Son. So these are things that are yet to come in the fullness, but at least so certain in God's judgment that it's coming that it's as though it's already done. They're suffering wrong and they will suffer wrong as the wages for their wrongdoing. So, that's important for us to catch. But the good news of the gospel is, and the things that we always proclaim as Christians to our non Christian friends and neighbors and co workers and relatives, is that the whole point of the Christian life is to exempt us from this. And it says, Don't fear what you're about to suffer. This is one of the letters in Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 10, to the churches, the seven churches. And it talks about them being persecuted. The devil, the adversary, is throwing them into prison. They're going to be tested in this particular time, perhaps poetic or symbolically. They're going to be tested for 10 days, and they're going to have tribulation. But be faithful, he says, unto death. Be be consistent, and be loyal, and be resolute about your commitment to the truth, and I will give you the crown of life. That's the sign of real faith, is the works that come from it, and the work of enduring to the end is the sign of real Christianity. And he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So that's to do with all something that is relatable to all of us. The one who conquers, which is the phrase that is used in these seven letters for the real Christians, will not be hurt by the second death. There will be no impact. There will be no um, effect of the second death. And that's the good news of the gospel that we proclaim to non-Christians, and I hope you remember it all the time, that you get to be in this category as you trust in Christ and the evidence of which are the things that we see in this passage that your faith holds up under the pressure of tribulation and trial. So that's important for us to catch the idea of the wages for those who do wrong and those who are in this particular context teaching false doctrine. These people that he's dealing with in the context in 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 13 it says they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. And this is an interesting combination of words as well. They take great joy in it. They have some kind of uh, enthusiastic uh, pleasure that they gain from being these people that revel, which is a word that is used uh, of, of partying, for instance, a kind of partying that doesn't make it right if it's in the nighttime. But the idea is they're not even afraid to do it in the daytime. And again, the idea of all of this being connected to what we see in the prosperity gospel preachers today, it fits perfectly right in. And back to a parallel passage that we just quoted in Matthew 23 about these people that teach all kinds of things that they're trying to make their listeners do. This is Matthew 23, verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear. They lay them on people's shoulders. But guess what? They themselves, they're not willing to move them even with their finger. Right? They they're, they want the high life. They want the easy life. They want it the way that they want it. They don't want to do the hard work. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They want reputation and popularity. They make their phylacteries broad, which is part of what these Jewish folks in their uh, response to the Mosaic Law did. Their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, which, of course, was a Deuteronomy. Uh, a command of Deuteronomy, and yet they're doing it, it says, just to be seen by people, their reputation. They love the places of honor at feasts. They love the feasts, and they want to be recognized as the important people there. They love the best seats in the synagogues. Of course they do, the box seats there, so to speak, and greetings in the marketplace, and to be called rabbi by others. They love all this. They're in it for themselves, which is what we've seen throughout the book of 2 Peter, is the emphasis on false teachers wanting all of the uh, earthly pleasures and luxuries and comforts and conveniences that come with material advancement in the world and not just material advancement but all the uh, intangibles of a you know of, of, of being an important person a vip in their sphere well the point about them uh, reveling in the daytime here is just a way to describe their lack of shame which throughout the bible you see that you know, there's a lot of wrongdoers out there and there's clearly a lot of wrongdoing in our lives, but hopefully there's something that's a part of your wrongdoing, as it says here in Jeremiah chapter six, at least it brings the topic up, and that is shame. When we're sinful and we Get that sense by looking in the mirror of God's word, or we get confronted by by a, a Christian friend or by a sermon or a good Christian book that we're reading, uh, we feel that sense of shame. Well, this is the characteristic of the false teachers and the false prophets back in Jeremiah's day. They were ashamed. I'm sorry, this is a, a hypothetical rhetorical question. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No. They were not at all ashamed. They didn't even have any shame. They didn't even know, look at how this is put, they didn't even know how to blush. It's like they didn't have any sense of being embarrassed at all. And then God promises, as we're seeing in our passage here, therefore, here's the promise of God, they shall fall among those who fall, which was coming in 586 BC, when Nebuchadnezzar's army was coming in and all these false prophets were going to fall. At the time I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. So the idea of that brazen kind of, I'm not afraid to want what I want and to go after it. And you see this so much in the false teachers even today, who've snuck into the church, should be obvious to us because we've got the advantage of books like Jude and 2 Peter to warn us of these things. But some of the things that they love are the temporal pleasures of this life, and they're not even ashamed to flaunt that kind of stuff as we see in a lot of the false teaching today. Uh, Jude chapter 12 talks about the fact, uh, parallels this fact here of That, I'm sorry, Jude verse 12, that the people within the early church here are blots and blemishes. As it's put here in Jude verse 12, they're hidden reefs at these love feasts. Remember the parallel we talked about yesterday, the parallel text here in Jude. Uh, They feast uh, with you without fear. They don't even know how to blush. They have no timidity. They have no shame. They're feeding themselves, which is not just a literal statement of them putting food in their mouth, but a metaphorical reference to the fact that they're feeding off of the people. They're waterless clouds. They you know, promise some kind of refreshment, but they don't bring it in their teaching. It's a lot like the Pharisees piling up stuff on people's backs. Uh, they're swept along by the winds. They're not grounded in the truth. They're fruitless trees. They look like trees, but they don't bear fruit. Late in autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Uh, Acts Talking about these blots and blemishes kind of being like hidden reefs that you don't see them reminds us in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30 through 31 that Paul had said, The problem is the wolves are going to come, but they're going to come in sheep's clothing. They're not going to spare the flock, but they're from among your own selves. They're going to arise and speak not blatantly wrong things, but twisted things. And as we said at the beginning of this study, as it relates to the false teachers, it's not just because you wear a Christian jersey or Christian label or have a Bible in your hand that you're the true thing as it relates to Christianity. It is your truthfulness and fidelity in what you say to God's Word. The twisted things, the things that use Christianese and Christian words and Christian concepts, but they're not quite right, is the problem with these blots and blemishes. I mean, it's not like they're completely entirely different in a way that seems obvious. They're not carrying around some uh, other book from some other religion. Uh, They're like the hidden reeves um, that you might run your boat into. Anyway, so, uh, speaking twisted things are going to draw disciples after them. So we're supposed to be alert, which is what the whole book of Second Peter is about. They're reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. We've already seen the parallel text here in Jude, but I just want to remind you of this. Reveal something about their heart: is that they know better? Second Timothy chapter two verses twelve through fourteen. I'm sorry, Second. Timothy chapter 3, verses 12 through 14 talks about the fact that we're going to be persecuted, which the early church there was in 2 Peter, while evil men and imposters go from bad to worse. There's a lot of people that are in this category in Scripture, but this category right here, imposters, uh, that's the kind that they know that they're doing wrong. They're wearing a mask, and they know they're wearing a mask. Look at this mask. Look at this phrase, deceiving and being deceived. There's a lot of people out there that are deceiving as the imposters and there are people that are just being deceived. They're both being the reception, they're being the uh, recipients of that false teaching, uh, but also there there are some that are sincerely led into false things that they repeat, but there are a lot of them that are simply imposters that go around deceiving people and they themselves are not deceived. But he says, as for you continuing what you've learned and what you firmly believe, so we've got to be vigilant. And as we saw here in this text, we know that they know what they're doing. They're reveling in their deceptions behind the scenes. They wouldn't do it in front of you, but behind you know, their discussions with Christians, they'll go around and they know that they're con men, so to speak. Uh, it says in their greed, they will exploit you. That's a purposeful thing. They do it with fault with false words and they know that they're false. It's a racket to them. We see a lot of that. And I've met some personally, some of the people on TV who have big national platforms, uh, some who've been exposed by Dateline and others. I've gotten a chance to meet these people, not because I wanted to or they wanted to meet me, but I can tell you these people, uh, so many of them are just con men, and they know that they're deceiving people. They're like uh, people just selling, uh, you know, um, fish oil. They're, they're out there doing things. It's probably not the best analogy anymore, but they're doing things. Snake oil, that's the, that's the concept. Uh, they're out there selling something they know is a hoax, and they do it all in the name of Christianity. Paul says, "On in contrast to that, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 5, he said, we— Real teachers of the word never came with words of flattery. We're not just trying to say things that you want to hear. But as you know, we didn't come also nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness, and that's the good news. The pastors of your church, I can say for myself and our pastoral team here, we come with sincerity, not with a pretext for greed. We don't want to flatter you with our words. We want to speak the truth. Although we want to speak it in love and diplomatically, it's a good reminder to distinguish in your own mind as a recipient of teaching what kind of leaders you're listening to. And we don't want people that are reveling in their deceptions while they feast with us. We want the people that spend time together in our communal uh, meals as we get back to those one day and our worship services and our small groups. We want to make sure we've got those who have the right heart. So. A lot more to go in 2 Peter tomorrow, chapter 2, verse 14. We'll be back. Be sure to subscribe, and we'll see you tomorrow.